Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Three thieves hung on crosses on a hill called Golgotha. And no, I did not misspeak. I meant what I said. Not two, there were three. Three thieves hung outside of Jerusalem on a hill. And those same three thieves, or or at least the same type, hang out in churches, Christian churches, all across the world. Three thieves hung in a place that was nicknamed the, the place of the skull. And those same three thieves hang out in places just like this. We should take a look at this very famous section of God's word. And what we see is hard to watch. We see the enemies of Christ crucify him. And crucifixion wasn't enough. Something that was well understood to believe one of the most cruel inventions ever created by people, it wasn't enough. Talk about kicking a guy when he's down. They literally added insult to injury. Three groups of people. Three groups of people come up, they mock, sneer at, and hurl insults at Jesus while he's being crucified. The first group of people are just the crowd and the rulers. They come up to him and they said, he has saved others. Let him save himself if he is the chosen one, if he is the Messiah. Instead of using Jesus's names to make praise, they use the very titles that God gives Jesus to make fun of him. And then it's the soldiers. The soldiers come up and they don't just inflict physical harm on him. They don't just bully him. But on top of that, they make fun of him as well. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. I mean, do you see what's going on here? Do you see the irony of what's happening here? The one, the chosen one who had the unique power to do the things that they were joking about, saving himself, didn't, so that he could save them. As they make jokes about their sin and make jokes about their Savior, they thought that Christ, not coming down from the cross, had proved that he wasn't really the anointed one. He wasn't really the long-foretold Messiah. And yet the very fact that he stayed on the cross was Jesus proving that he really was who he said he was. And then we see the third person make fun of him. We watch and it's, it's hard to see, but in the midst of all of this, someone suffering the same fate as Jesus joins in on the jokes. It's the first thief, the first thief that we're going to take a look at. This thief turns to Jesus and says this, 
One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. I don't know what he thought. I don't know what thoughts have to go through someone's mind who's in a similar state as suffering crucifixion and yet you make fun of the person next to you. Maybe he thought that he would in some way win the crowd. Maybe he thought that this could somehow get him out of this situation. Maybe he thought he just wanted to make light of this situation because he didn't know what else to do and he was scared. I don't know what he thought, but he did it. The first thief that we're going to look at is the complacent thief. And the complacent thief makes fun of Jesus. And in the process of it, he robs Christ of his honor. The thief wasn't done stealing. He robbed Christ of his honor. And here's the worst part of it. He not only takes from Christ the King the honor and the glory due his name, but this thief robs himself. He robs himself of the redemption that Jesus Christ had for him. Listen, this guy had a front row seat. He had a front row seat at the culminating moment of God's plan of salvation. Jesus Christ redeeming him, buying him back from sin and from death. He rejected it. He rejected it because of his actions and his attitude. This man had a front row seat to watching his champion, his savior, the Messiah, foretold in Eden, now here on Golgotha, purchasing him back from the power of death so that he might live, and he rejected it. He said, I don't want any part of it. He's too complacent. That's the first thief, the complacent thief. You know what that term means, complacent? I thought I was wrong. I thought complacency was just being a little lazy. I thought complacency was maybe, oh, uh, not being careful or, or being careless. But complacency, it's worse than that. Complacency is being so self-righteous, so self-satisfied with your situation that you're not aware of danger. It's the junk food eating couch potato who is boastful about how I don't exercise, who is boastful about how I don't make healthy eating choices. And yet while this fuels their bravado, it, it is also fueling the blockage in their arteries. It's the number one ranked team in the nation who experiences win after win after win, and they get high on their own hype. They start, they start believing the hype, the buzz about them. And so they don't really prepare all that well for their next opponent, an unranked opponent with less talent because they get complacent and they lose. That's complacency. That's the thief on the cross. He's standing there, hanging there, looking at Jesus. And because he's so smug, he's so self-conceited, he has the audacity in turn to look to him, mock him, hurl insults at him. And he doesn't even realize he's robbing himself. He's robbing, yes, Christ of his glory, but he's robbing himself of the redemption that's being given full and free right there. You know who else is complacent or gets complacent? 
It's Christians. And some of you are looking at me with those bright eyes nodding. You're like, yes, yes, they do. (laughs) You know it. Yeah, Pastor Matt, preach. Get that complacency out of here. But isn't that it? That's the problem. Complacent people ever don't think they are complacent. Complacency happens in the life of a Christian when you're satisfied. You're pretty satisfied with the growth, the spiritual growth that you have seen in your life thus far. You look at your life and you say, you know what? I've never served this much before. I serve way more at church for my God than I did a year ago. And I certainly serve way more than that guy. You're so self-satisfied with it that you miss the point that you're, you're robbing Christ of the glory due him, the opportunity to serve him, because in all of it, there's this unstopping complaining. Christians get complacent when they look at the life of the Christian and they know that a Christian, a Christian's life is one of continual growth, continual growth in, in godly living, continual growth in faith. And yet you're pretty satisfied with what you know. You're pretty happy with where you're at. You know that the life of a Christian happens and grows when you connect yourself to God's word. And when you don't connect yourself to God's word, you don't just stay status quo. You don't grow. In fact, when you don't surround yourself with the means of grace, your faith dies. And you're complacent. I've actually heard it. I've actually heard people joke about studying God's word and say, Pastor Matt, I do church. I don't really do Bible study. Come on, man. How much more do you want from me? You insult God and his gospel because you're complacent. Complacency happens in Christians' lives when they offer excuses for not living like followers of Christ, yet Christ is clear about what that looks like. It's a busy season at work. There's a lot going on. I'm I'm super busy right now. I'm not really that type. I don't really really do those things. Sounds like perfectly justifiable reasons to a complacent person, but it's an affront. It's an assault on what Christ says, on what he says a follower of mine will do and what they look like. Complacency happens in the life of the Christian when they show up and go through the motions. And and maybe it's been years. Maybe it's been for years. You'll say to this person, you know, talk about your faith. They'll say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm proud of it. Been my whole life. uh, Or I've been born again. And yet do the things that Christ does. Well, I'm here, aren't I? You're miles from here. Miles from here. And the fact that you're going through the motions is mocking the Messiah. Complacent Christians get upset when there's something new or someone new in their community of faith. Complacent Christians are seen and they get defensive when people challenge them or, or just are accountable 
Christian accountability buddies to them. That's complacency. And it's a tragedy because it not only robs Christ the King of the honor and the glory that's due him, the complacent Christian is robbing themselves. They are robbing themselves of the redemption, the forgiveness, the grace, the peace, and the joy that God has won for them on the cross. Christians have a front row seat to the culminating moment of God's plan of salvation. They have it here in his midst. Christ Jesus revealed to him in his word, given to them his body and blood in the sacrament of Holy Communion. It's there. And yet they make jokes about it not taking every opportunity to be with him. That's complacency. And now now it's time for confession. Personal confession. You want to know why it was particularly easy for me to list those areas or or those marks of a complacent Christian? It's because I've been very much that. Very much that all of that in many different seasons of my life. And I know firsthand, I know firsthand what happens when a complacent Christian finds out who they are, or let me put it this way, who they've been and realizes just how much they've stolen, how much they have robbed their God who gave them his life. Well, you become the second thief. You become the convicted thief. Convicted thief is is fully aware of their wickedness, but they wallow in it. A convicted thief is someone who, who sees their sin, who understands their sin, and yet they sit in it. They sit in it to the point of self-loathing. And the convicted thief, well, they rob Christ as well. They're still thieves as well because the convicted thief robs Christ, the king of his joy, of his greatest joy because they rob themselves of Christ's forgiveness. Christ, the king, your savior has no greater joy, no greater pleasure than giving you his forgiveness, than giving you his grace, his redemption, full and free. And yet when you sit in your sin and you focus on yourself and you wallow with self-pity on the guilt of the things you've done wrong, you steal that joy from him. You steal that joy from not only him, but also you to know and experience his love and experience his forgiveness. We see it on the cross. It's It's the second thief. He turns to the first one, the first one that was making fun of Jesus, and he rebukes him. He said, don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. That's the convicted thief. This is what I deserve. We see this thief there at a place called the skull, but only for a moment. Only for a moment. Because right after he confesses his sin, he makes what is perhaps the most beautiful most elegant, most profound confession of faith. 
You see, this thief understood what the Christian life was about. The Christian life is not just realizing that we are wrong, we are full of sin, but also at the very same time knowing you are right. You are right with God because of Christ Jesus. That's repentance. It's at the same time knowing I have sinned, but also at the same time knowing full well I am right with God. And that is why he says this. Convicted no more, but fully convinced of who Jesus is, he says this. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. No more convicted, but fully convinced that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. He was the Messiah. He was God's chosen one, the one in whom there was no sin. This man has done nothing wrong. He confessed his faith in Christ Jesus, convicted no more of his sin, but fully convinced that Jesus was a king, a king who had a kingdom, a king who by his own volition could choose to step into his kingdom or out of his kingdom and welcome who he pleases into his kingdom. Praise, ask him, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this is where we see the third thief. (laughs) This is where we see the third thief on that hill, step in. It's Jesus. And this is what he says to him. He says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus tells him, today you are going to be with me in heaven forever. And you want to know why he said that? Why he could say that? Because Christ Jesus is the greatest thief there ever was. The most holy thief. No one has taken more than Jesus. (laughs) Your Savior, the Son of God, left heaven and without your permission came to a world he was not welcomed in and without asking you, took from you all of your sins and removed them. Christ Jesus came into a place where he was not wanted or welcomed. He broke in and he broke away everything. He stole it all that separated you from God. He came and he came to hostages. You and me held there to sin and the devil and he robbed the devil blind. He took him. He took all of the satisfaction that the devil had of us being his own and he made you his. He brought you into your kingdom. Yeah, he's the greatest thief there ever was. He's the third thief and we're gonna call him the covert thief. And this covert thief robs us of our sins and he reigns as our king. Because you see it now, don't you? He's looking like a thief but this thief is wearing a mask. He's wearing a mask to cover a crown. Because don't be fooled. The one that looks like a common criminal is not. In him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created through this one. He looks a lot like a thief, but he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He thinks, you think, he looks like a thief, but he is not. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead. Why? Because God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in this one. It's this one. 
that looks a lot like a thief, but is your king, that God said this. He said, I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous savior. We see Jesus hanging on a cross on that place, that place called the skull. We see Jesus' head, once crowned with a golden crown, wearing now a crown of thorns. We see Jesus, his face, which once shone with brightness brighter than the sun, now glistening with blood and sweat in the middle of the day. We see Jesus' ears, which were once filled with the praise of angels being filled with insults. We see Jesus' hands, which formed humankind, spread out on a cross. We see feet, which once sat on the throne in heaven, nailed to a piece of wood. We see our Savior, everything, almost everything, completely injured, except for one thing his tongue, his tongue. So he might speak words of forgiveness to criminals, to criminals both complacent and convicted and tell you, I remember your sins no more. To speak words of pardon and words of peace that today, yes, today, you will be with me forever in my kingdom in paradise. This is your king. He looks like a thief, but he reigns, he reigns, yes, then and now as a king. Last week, Sunday after church, later in the evening, uh, my wife and I got to watch one of our favorite shows, the, the premiere of season three of The Crown, next Netflix drama that follows the life of Queen Elizabeth II and all of the royal family. I promise you, no spoilers this week. <laughs> No spoilers, but I'm going to tell you something that you already knew from history. Queen Elizabeth had a sister, has a sister, um, had a sister whose name was Princess Margaret. And Princess Margaret shares with Queen Elizabeth a healthy relationship, a good relationship, a close relationship, and they love each other very, very much. But what you may or may not know from history is that at times things were tense between the two sisters. The way the uh, fictional drama at least plays it out is that Princess Margaret is is jealous of her sister. That's why there's tension. She's jealous of the position she holds. She's jealous of the limelight, the spotlight that is on her life. And, And she wants some of that purpose for her life. And because of this tension, Princess Margaret's life, it it doesn't go super smoothly. There's problems with alcohol. There's problems with her relationships. There's problems with her health. So I'm I'm watching all of this unfold uh, last Sunday as I just watch it on the Netflix drama, and I wonder to myself if all of it could be avoided. 
I'm looking at Princess Margaret, her character, and I'm thinking, could, could the, the sickness, the, the addiction, the troubled relationships with, with your family and with your loved ones, could it all have been avoided? And maybe, maybe it's a little naive of me, but I, I, th- I think it could have. I wonder if, if she just stopped for a second and realized who she was, realized that she was a part of the royal family. She had a sister who was her majesty, the queen. She had access to immeasurable amounts of wealth. She had opportunities that a a fraction of people in the world will ever know or see. And yet she was was complacent about her, her life. And she dealt with a lot of trouble. I think it could have been avoided. Over the past several weeks, We've been in a sermon series called Homecoming. Our theme, our message has been this, welcome home. Welcome home to the family, to the home that God has given to you, that he has blessed you with. The Holy Spirit is not lazy with his language. There's a reason he calls God our father and he calls you and me brothers and sisters in Christ. And what we see today with Christ our King, the family that we're placed into is a royal family. And our God is our king. And he calls us brothers and sisters. That is our family. And he's not just ruling as a figure to have, but listen, he's, he's ruling in such a way that everything he does is for your benefit and it's for your blessing. I look at my life and I'm going to ask you to look at yours. And, and you look at it and you think about it. There are trouble. There's troubles that, that we cause for ourselves. Call it tension. Call it drama. Whatever you, whatever you will. But I wonder if it couldn't all be avoided if we just realized the family that we're in. It's a simple thought, but it's the final thought that I want to leave you with today. Is just realize your place in your royal family. Just recognize that 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 is what you have. The joy that you have in the redemption given to you for free. The peace that you have, knowing that it's all good between you and God. The joy, the, the love that you get to experience, not just one day in heaven, but right here, right now in the embrace of your faith family. You know, the early Christian church, they, um, they were really, really kind of uh, obsessed with the, the thief on the cross. It's a pretty good story. It's a great story. It's easy to see why they were so fascinated by it. Um, but did you know the early Christian church, they actually uh, made up a story about the thief on the cross? We do that with stories that we like a lot, right? We, we fill in the background for it. <laughs> well, there's a story about that thief, and they give him a name. His name's Dismas. And it's completely un- unsubstantiated by, the hi- by history or by biblical account or biblical scholarship, but it's a fun story, so I wanted to tell it to you this morning. The story is of Dismas, the, the thief who believed and trusted in Jesus and, and his partner in crime, the other thief, the one who mocked Jesus. His name's Gestas. 
And the story goes like this, that 30 years prior, about 30 years prior to them hanging on the cross and, and meeting Jesus, they actually met Jesus when he was just an infant or a toddler. The story goes that Jesus's life was being threatened, that uh, Caesar Augustus wanted all the babies under two years old to be killed. And that's true. That's in the Bible. And so Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus get on a donkey and they go, they flee to Egypt. Again, that's true. That's in the Bible. But here's the made up account. Here's the fairy tale, if you will, that there were some highway robbers on the way from Bethlehem to Egypt, and it was Dismas and Gestas, and they held up the holy family. They were going to rob them of all their wealth. The story goes that Dismas was, was about to uh, steal from Mary and Joseph, but then, then realized there was a small child with them. So in a moment of compassion and tenderheartedness, he stopped. And he convinced Gestas that they shouldn't do this. And they let him go by, unharmed, uninjured. That's the story. That's it. (laughs) So why, why do I tell it to you? A completely unsubstantiated story from history or the Bible. Well, I think it it adds a love, a layer of realization if just for a moment you pretend it's real. Pretend for a moment that that actually happened. And think about the realization that would have set in on Dismas, hanging there on the cross. And he looks and he sees the child he saved and realizes that that child is saving him. Imagine the realization and the feeling of love and joy that would have overcame him when he sees Mary down below, Jesus next to him, and he sees that this holy family, the one that I once held up, it's now the holy family that I am held into. Can you imagine that? The realization? Well, you don't have to, because that is your reality. Christ is your king. He's given you a home. It's with him. So welcome home. Amen. Amen. 